If you are speaking to somebody and you're not getting better, find somebody else to talk to. I think how the, the medical community has been conditioned to deal is very quick. You write a script, see me in six weeks, and let's hope it gets better. And that's detrimental to the cause. Welcome to the latest episode of the Live Into Your Brilliance podcast, the place where we shine a light on the innate brilliance of the human condition and also have a lot of fun blowing up illusions that get in the way. Um, as always, you have your duo of hosts, myself, Al Kenny, and my main man in Boston, Mark Billows Bilby. How are you doing, Mark? I'm good, my friend. How are you? I'm really good. I've, I've got a bit of a sore neck, but aside from that, this is my last conversation before I jump on a plane to go home for Kenny Christmas Part 1. We're having a fake Kenny Christmas with my parents this weekend because they're not with us for actual Christmas. So although it's the beginning of December, it's uh, something I'm quite excited about and looking forward to. We, we have a little Christmas gift uh, today. <laughs> And we are joined by a, a really good friend of mine and a, a really superhuman being, um, my my mate Rob Desmond. So Rob, awesome to have you here, guys. Thanks, thanks for asking me. Appreciate it. <laughs> um, and so, just by way of of sort of an introduction, you know, R Rob is a Rob is like an international man of mystery. The more the more I dug, uh, the more I, I found. And if you, if you go into the archives of the Drexel University rag, um, his name is like cigarettes in prison. I mean, he's all over that thing. And, and he's, it seems like you scored a goal for that, that hockey team, the ice hockey team at Drexel, the Dragons, like every single week for like four or five years. I mean, it was insane. Um, but, but uh, yeah, so Rob is um, Rob is uh, uh, grew up in in, in New Jersey um, and uh, currently lives in in Mass, um, just down the road from me. We have spent uh, many hours together, um, often over a glass of red wine. Um, he is uh, profoundly insightful uh, around the human condition. He has been through some really uh, interesting, sometimes traumatic, uh, sometimes serendipitous and, and humorous uh, events that have sort of shone a light on an awakening. And, um, and we, we've, you know, we, we bonded uh, over our mutual awakenings and just the things that we've seen and the awareness that has been uh, uh, created as a result of these various events. And, and I'm delighted to have him uh, on the show because uh, recently, um, I think I mentioned it in one of the previous um, episodes, just in our orbit uh, uh, of friends, um, you know, we've, we've been made aware of five young men, uh, all between the age of sort of 19 and 26 who have taken their lives um, in the in the last six months, which is just horrific. And you know, part of Rob's credentials is that he was a counselor with the American Foundation um, of Suicide Prevention, um, the the Survivor Outreach Program there, which which is I'm sure you'll you'll tell us all about. Um, and uh, he he's got a 
he's got some some really harrowing but actually very beautiful stories to to sort of unpack um but i thought it would be a, an amazing opportunity to get rob on to tell his story um and just for us to explore um what what he's seen because i think it might echo profoundly um out there and i'm sure there are a lot of people who might listen to this and get huge value as well but apart from all of that rob is you know he's he's super involved in his community he's the president of the wayland hockey association he's he gets involved with his two beautiful boys um you know who who grew up loving hockey as much as he did um skating on the ponds of of massachusetts um and his eldest son is now uh, happily ensconced uh, at the university of colorado denver so um Anyway, Rob, lovely to have you here, mate, and uh, and can't wait to dive in. Oh, I appreciate it. And you're, you're giving me way too many accolades, Mark. Uh, you know, in that article you read at Drexel must have been the same one on reprint. So <laughs> that is, uh, it wasn't. That is, that is all good, but I, ironic. Yeah, hockey's been, hockey's been a big part of, of my life and my, you know, transcend definitely through my boys. Love, love the sport. I, I don't know where you'd like to start, but... But I would love you to just jump in wherever it feels most comfortable and and uh, tell us your your story. I mean, you know, I think when we first met, I still remember we were renting that deck house in 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 uh, uh, on Puritan Lane, and and you came over, and we immediately started talking about um, sports as guys do, yeah. and uh, and you and you you sort of hinted at this illustrious uh, hockey career and then proceeded to show me the scar on your ankle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, uh, that's a classic beer league hockey where, uh, where I think I ironic. So, and Al, uh, I'm in software as well and been, have been for 20 years. So, you know, with that comes a lot of travel and I remember <clears throat> having to go to a meeting crutching in and, and our sponsor looks at me and laughs. He goes, did you not check your birth certificate before you went out on the ice? So like, <laughs> you know, poking fun at, at me trying to continue. Um, but I, I think Mark to come full circle, kind of, you know, hockey, hockey was introduced to me from my brother. And that's really how I got into the sport. Uh, when my brother got into it, hockey was not as profound as it is today in the U S and like, I don't know why I liked it. I think it, I liked it because, you know, certainly he played and he was good and, and, you know, young brother always looks up to older brother. There's that, you know, innate natural thing that happens there. And for some reason it stuck and it just, it kept going. <clears throat> it kept going with our family. I have no idea why I sound this bad. Hopefully the editor can make me sound better. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but yeah, it was, it was always a big part of, of us. And, you know, um, yeah, my boys are, are, are way better players than I ever was for sure. Um, but I think that that is kind of the start of, of, you know, a topic that, that you brought up with the folks in your orbit is, is mental health. And, and unfortunately how many individuals do die by suicide? Um, my brother, Al, you don't know, he passed away, um, when I was 27 by suicide. Mark, I think you know this, but I also lost a nephew in 2013, my sister's son. 
Um, so it's, it's hit our family, you know, in a couple of ways where, um, when my brother passed away, the stigma around talking about it was very prevalent, even within our own family. And, um, I don't think I mentioned it to even my closest of friends, like for a decade. And then when my nephew passed away, very different. My sister is very outspoken. Our family was very outspoken. So certainly, um, from that perspective, good that people were talking about it, but lots of people still don't, don't feel comfortable, um, whether it's an individual who needs some assistance or also families who see individuals who are within their, you know, loved ones, close friends, family who aren't doing well and they don't know what to do about it. And I think that that is a mission of the AFSP is to kind of bring awareness. Uh, I'm not as involved with them as I, as I once was just life happens and, you know, you have a limited amount of time. Um, but you know, great people like you affording me an opportunity like this to talk about it. I do deeply feel that if I don't speak about it and kind of my own journey that I'm doing a disservice to my brother and my nephew on how they died because they weren't, you know, big misconception is when people choose to take their own life, it is like a selfish and cowardly and like that bravado behind that statement is if I can curse is just such bullshit. Um, I, I look at what my brother and nephew went through and both of them are way tougher than anybody I know. Um, like imagine, you know, we get up every morning, you're like, ah, I don't feel good. I just, I need more caffeine or whatever it is. And you can kind of fight through that feeling or that morning, whereas others, they can't. And what's really difficult about that is you can't put like an equation. It's, ah, you ate this, so you feel bad. Take this, and you'll feel better in an hour. Like there's just no equation that makes it easy for somebody to provide some help. You know, and thank you for for that kind of um, insight, um, and and also for being so vulnerable. I mean, sort of saying that you weren't able to talk about it for ten years. Um, but if I may, you know, I'd, I'd love to bring up the 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 subject of the speech you made at uh, at Bergen Community uh, College, um, and you know, you sent me this the speech, and and uh, and it is it is very very moving, and and I mean the fact that Jerome was was a, a, a closet poet um, and. Uh, and uh, and and maybe you know if appropriate we we can even read his poem at, at the end of the session. But um, but that speech w- was I mean it, it brought me to tears when I you know and I read it multiple times and I've shared it with my my girls and and um, I, I guess the question for me is what what happened or what did you see that suddenly you know, for 10 years of not kind of talking about it or feeling some sense of shame or whatever it is, because you even reference like, you know, me, my family, Jerome have nothing to be ashamed of. Um, and I thought that was a very powerful statement in that speech. But, but what happened that, what did you see that suddenly allowed you to kind of face it head on? 
Yeah, it was uh, interesting. It was a single. It was a single moment. Um, I, that's probably not fair. It's a culmination of of many, probably. But uh, so when my brother passed away, I moved home. Uh, my mom was was by herself, and I'm the youngest of six kids, and and it's me, and then ten years, and my oldest and sister. You know, a lot of my siblings had their respective families or things, so I moved home subconsciously, I had no desire. I lived out on Long Island, you know, by myself when he had passed away and I had no desire to be there, you know, and the bravado of the guys, like, I'm going to go home and take care of my mom. And the reality is like, I, I wanted to be there just as much, you know, for me as, as it would be for her. <clears throat> and I lived there for a little over a year. Um, you know, Sharon and I were, were together then Mark. Um, and for, a solid year, year and a half, I just kind of existed. And um, I'll never forget Sharon's like, when are you ever going to be normal again? And it was an interesting kind of moment for me because I realized that I wasn't doing myself any good. I wasn't actually facing what happened. I just went on. And even though I have a big family, big extended family, great friend group, like I couldn't find whatever it was that I could relate to to allow me to grieve and really understand what happened. I think the latter statement there is also a byproduct of a very traditional Irish Catholic family. You don't, you don't talk, you don't talk about anything, you know? So I ended up moving. Uh, I asked for a transfer with the company I worked for. I moved to DC where I didn't know anybody. And it was something I, I just knew kind of I had to do. So I went and, uh, embarrassingly, the first month I was there, I, I probably drank myself to sleep every night. Um, just because I, A, was super lonely, B, subconsciously, like I knew I had to face what happened. Um, so the easiest thing to do, I actually lived in a motel or a hotel until my apartment was available, blah, blah, blah. So fast forward a couple of weeks, I'm talking to my sister. <clears throat> and Mark, I don't know if you've ever met, you met my sister, Anne, I think. Um, but my sister, Anne, is very insightful into into people in the human condition and you guys the phrase you guys use a lot and she she pushed me to go to a survivors of suicide meeting and um you know i'm like i don't i don't need that i don't need to do that and she's like just do it for me can you go so begrudgingly again i think the that male bravado i went and given I only lived in the areas, I was in the, um, I think I was in the Falls Church, Roslyn area of Northern Virginia at the time. And I didn't know where I was going. And it was before, it was before we had these, these things to help us get everywhere. I got lost. I got lost going to the school where this, this grief, you know, group was meeting. And uh, I walk in, finally find it, walk in, and there's a room of 20 to 25 people just talking about their loss. And so when I walked in, thankfully, I had the seat to the left of the person who was speaking, meaning that if it were to go around the room, and if I were to speak, I would be last. And that is, I'm, I'm not the most spiritual person, but that was divine intervention. Because I sat and listened for the next 90 minutes of a room full of people all whom had lost somebody to suicide who I could relate to like instantaneously. And it wasn't necessarily what they said. 
but it was that in de- they were describing the indescribable feeling and grief that they were going through that all of us were like, at least for me, I was like, I'm going to curse again. I was like, holy shit, people can really feel the way I feel. And I wasn't able to pinpoint it. Specific though, <clears throat> was a 14 year old boy whose father was a, was a police officer who had used his service revolver to take his life. And in that room is this 14 year old boy who literally was speaking like we are now, like just composed. And he had to see if he was alive. He had to call his mom. And I literally was blown away, brought me to tears. And that was the only uh, meeting that I ever went to until years later when I chaired a couple for the AFSP. But at that moment, I knew that you know, what had happened was a lot more prevalent, gave me a a comfort level that other people could literally feel the way that not only me, but my brothers and sisters felt. And um, it gave me a much different perspective for my parents. My parents were not living together when that happened and very different personalities. Um, But the unimaginable grief that they went through, I still couldn't to this day, I can't imagine what that's like. But that 14-year-old boy, for the couple of minutes he spoke, like it was, it's forever ingrained in me. But that was the defining moment for me to kind of, uh, I think your, your guys' um, you know, judgment to acceptance uh, podcast recently, when you talk about like from within, it was that moment where I'm like, I'm not hiding any of this moving forward. I don't care how uncomfortable other people get when I bring it up. And I say this even to this day, like, I hope you're not uncomfortable because I'm not like, I'm not uncomfortable talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all of that. Well, it's amazing. Even you can, I could feel the power of that moment having not been there. You know, you can feel the emotion in it. It, you know, when you talk about the discomfort that people feel and, and like, what, what do you think is at play there? Cause it's so, isn't it? There's two things in my mind as you are talking one, how there's this like emotional expression, being able to just express how we feel is hard sometimes, you know, and, and like we're, so there's that there's that ability and to be able to talk about how we're feeling and when we're when we're in our when we're when we're in our own world sometimes that can seem like the hardest thing and yet it's it's the it's part of uh, it's part of any releasing process i think but it does seem like i'm a i'm an irish catholic from an irish and so as you said that i was thinking yeah, there are so many parts of society that kind of set you up with a view that, you know, to be a strong man is to keep the to keep the good side out. You know, that's and yet like that fourteen year old boy, like that's strength. You know, standing, talking and release. Like that's so I'm curious what you think, what what it looks like to you now, having gone through that, like where the what it is that people see that makes them uncomfortable and, and what it is that you've seen that's kind of shattered that for you where like having gone through that and, and I can't imagine it, but to be able to sit and talk about it as you are now, like what, what do you think is at play? What, what do you see that's at play there? 
I don't think you can pinpoint it. I believe that there is a there is still an undertone to suicide because it's not diagnosable by chemistry or science where somebody has cancer, okay, you've got a radiation chemo, boom, boom, boom. I've I've got, you know, I I broke my ankle playing beerly cocky. Okay, I've got to put some screws in, I've got to mend it, and here's here's the course to get better. And for mental illness, there's so many different contributing components, you know, what you eat, what you drink, you know, you're in, there's environmental conditions, I believe are really impactful to people and by environment, I mean, home life and friend groups and all of those things. So in the experience that I have, and even, you know, coming, um, one of the other things that resonated with me, one of that. I don't know if it was the podcast with Jeff Monder or the other one, but they were talking about like being really open with coworkers. And I'm very open with anybody I work with around what happened and why. And we do charity work and I'm very open to talk about it. And I remember specifically at previous company, um, I got up and I said, Hey, I just, I want to know everybody. So we're going to go around the room and we're going to just share a charity or an interest that means something to you. And I knew one of the individuals in the room had lost uh, his father actually to uh, in 9-11. And so I knew like for him, he had this profound impact or thing that impacted him in his life. But I went first and the room was dead silent. I explained who I lost, I explained what I do. And it was like this pin drop. You could hear everything. And I said, oh, I'm like, hold on a second. Guys, you shouldn't be embarrassed because I'm not. And, I'm, you know, I'm happy to talk to you about any of this. And a little bit later, people would talk, hey, I know somebody, hey, my relative. So unfortunately, that when you hear like there's a stigma around it, it's there. I don't know how to, I, I don't know if you can pinpoint a reason why it's there. My belief, based on my own experience and others that I've talked to, uh, especially some of the folks that I've like sat in rooms who have recently lost somebody because the, like you can't say everyone's like, Oh my God, they seem so normal. They seem fine. And then someone dies and putting, trying to piece those together is, is an equation that is, is almost impossible to figure out. Right. And, and even I can still look back and be like, how, how did, how did you get there? Now I have a different perspective based on, you know, after that 10 year kind of hiatus of me not talking, <clears throat> I very much kind of dug in and learned. But my view, long answer to your question now, like my view is there's still a stigma around it. And I also think society now, we, we've also over indexed to sharing a lot. And you have folks who say, I, you know, I need a, I have a, I need a mental health day or I'm not doing well or whatever. And I don't know if people always believe that, especially in like the work culture of, of America. Right. And I think that is another component. So the third piece, um, is doctors across the board. And, um, for those listening, there's a doctor here in Massachusetts in new England. His name is Dr. Jack Jordan. I would Google him and read anything that he's put together. If you, or you know, have interest. He's done some amazing work with the medical community around just being more aware as a doctor. Um, 
like I can tell you in, in my brother's instance, you know, he was seeing somebody to, you know, a therapist, a psychologist to talk to or psychiatrist. Um, and I called her when I knew that my brother was not doing well. And I said to her, I said, Hey, I know you have doctor patient privilege. I'm not asking you to divulge anything. I'm not asking you to, you know, to answer, or I'm not even going to ask you, what am I doing wrong? But what can I do to help? Is there anything I can do to help? And she wouldn't answer me. And she's all she kept, well, that's doc, doctor patient privilege. That's doctor patient privilege. I called her three times and I think my brother passed away four to five weeks after that. Um, and that was always ingrained. And when I met him and told him that story, <clears throat> he put me in front of a room of probably a hundred doctors and how many of them came up to me afterward, like embarrassed, but that's still a, you know, there's a system who says you can't talk about it. There's a stigma who people who don't know how or don't want to talk about it. And then there's a third piece of those who do talk about it. Some don't believe what they're saying. So it's, it's a, it's a bad, it's a bad mix, right? I don't think there's an easy answer out to your question. Um, other than just to continue to, to talk and, and research. And I'll, I'll pause after this. I also think it's really important for those who do need help that you, if you are speaking to somebody and you're not getting better, find somebody else to talk to. Like that, that's an important thing. And Dr. Jack Jordan talks about that a lot too. Um, I think our medical condition or how the the medical community has been conditioned to deal is very quick. You write a script, see me in six weeks, and let's hope it gets better. And I, I don't, I don't think. In fact, I think that's that's detrimental to to the cause. And Rob, uh, I think uh, something that might be incredibly valuable for people to hear, particularly people who have lost somebody, um, and and are really struggling uh to to even acknowledge it or, or make sense of the what must be a, a a soup of emotions that are overwhelming at times um when you when you dis, when you had that moment in in virginia and you listened to that 14 year old boy and then and then you started to take the first steps um to to sort of talk about it and acknowledge that there's nothing to be ashamed of, and and you and then you really kind of put yourself out there in, in the most profound way. Like, can you describe how you feel or how you started to feel versus the way you felt when you were kind of not not acknowledging anything for ten years? For me, um, because of the environment that I grew up in, and I'm not faulting my my parents here when I say this. My brother struggled for a long time. Um, he had attempted two previous times, um, and all of that was was really not discussed. So I was left as uh, I think I was 13 when my brother first attempted 14. Um, so I was left to my own assumptions of what happened or who he was or, you know, that sort of thing. My brother always, um, always had a great friend group, always like 
everyone, you, you read the speech, Mark, and, and it is an honest statement. Like everybody who met him is like, wow, he's, he's great. I really enjoy him. Um, and, and then he, he had tough times and you couldn't help. And I didn't know how to help. And he was pushing all of us away. So your assumption as a teenager is, ah, he's, you know, he's just being my brother and eh, like you just kind of push it off and put it in the box. And then as I learned more and I talked about it and I talked to other people, my respect for him and love for him and all the rest, like just dramatically went through the roof. Um, you know, like here to here, not that, not that I never loved him, you know what I mean? But it was just a different, it was a different perspective. And I think now when I talk about him, I'm hoping people take away like the, the amount of respect that, because I, I, the three of us really, we are lucky. We haven't, we don't know what that's like. I don't, I don't want to know what that's like, but I have so much respect for people who, who, who do. And then on the, unfortunately some can, can find a path that works for them and, and others can't. And what always crosses my mind is the ones who can't, can you imagine like that moment, what that feels like? Right. So putting yourself there, like I, 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 I do think about that because I mean, no matter how bad things get, right. No matter, cause life happens, as they say, there's lots of challenges for all of us. Um, but to put yourself in that position in that moment to me was like a, I've thought a lot about like, can it, it's a, it's a grounding moment for me to help not judge people to, to help like just put things in a much, much different perspective on what really matters. Um, because anybody who's lost somebody would, would give anything for another day, regardless of what the outcome maybe. And I'll leave with this. Like I, I, I do believe, um, this is going to sound weird, but for my, for my brother, um, it was life was hard for him. It was really hard for him. And if you take that statement with imagining like the moment, I don't think any one of us could really you can't say, wow, that's selfish. That's cowardly. Like if you really think about what goes through somebody's mind when they are at the, the, the bottom like that, personally, it's not, nothing is that bad, right? For us and for those that do get to that moment, like what I would wish is that they do know that there's a ton of people there that are, would be willing to do anything for them one common thread that just with the work that I've done, many folks who do suffer and get very down and have suicidal thoughts, push people away, truly do push people, those who they love most away. And there's a moment, and I've spoken to a, a lot of, a lot of people about this where they push people away. And part of that is their own you know, I'm inferior or there's a, there's a complex. They don't want to ask for help. All of those things, they don't want to burden those that they care about the most. 
And that's a really hard place to be. All of us who are parents, and you know when your kids are hurting and they push you away, magnify that by a thousand, right? And that that is a struggle that many families go through because that individual doesn't know where to go and the family doesn't know what to do. Yeah, and I think that, that really resonates with me. I mean, uh, I think, you know, my wife, Vanessa, uh, her brother, eldest brother, Andrew, um, who, who sadly died uh, as a result of uh, addiction. But when he was a young man, he sort of, you know, he definitely, he, he was, he was um, isolating himself from the family for a very long time and actually took himself off to Paris. He was a great artist, uh, went off to Paris and, um, and v- Vanessa recounts the story of her, the, the parents suddenly getting a phone call and arranging a, and a, a flight for him to come home. And he arrived home and his entire wrist and hand was bound up and, and what have you. And, and because he had attempted to commit suicide, um, and he had severed the tendons in his, in his drawing hand, which was, which was terrible. But, you know, the parents, their story to the kids was he was attacked in and, and robbed in Paris, you know, and it's only like decades, decades later that the siblings have sort of openly spoken about and said, that wasn't a that wasn't an attack. Like, you know, Andy tried to take his life and was unsuccessful. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah. And I mean that, that, you know, it, it also resonates with, um, the other cases that I mentioned in, in our orbit, like, you know, these, these poor young men were just increasingly isolating themselves from their friend groups, from, from their family before, tragedy ultimately struck and they got whisked away. But I, I, I wanted uh, just, you know, switching, not switching gears, but just building on what I, what I was kind of um, asking about and what you just alluded to. I mean, the one thing that's always struck me, mate, about you is like when you're talking about colleagues, even, <laughs> even in, you know, cause you, you, as you mentioned, you've been in, you've been in, uh, enterprise software and SAS, the SAS arena for many decades. And you've held a lot of senior positions and continue to do so. Um, and you've, you know, you've worked with all sorts of interesting characters, um, in, in the investment community to, you know, to, to the customers you've dealt with, to, to colleagues, but you always have this amazing awareness, um, and, and I'm always struck by how when you're talking about people who are either pissing you off or, or, or who's sta- who, 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 you know, need to be held accountable and, 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 and they're just not being held accountable for their bad behavior. You, you have this amazing empathy for human beings. And, and, it, and it always like blows me away. Cause I'm like, he's a dick and you're like, yeah, but you need to understand why he's a dick. And, and I like that blows me away. And like, where did that awareness and that empathy for the human condition come from? Was it born out of what happened to Jerome? Is, is that part of the, 
the the magic or, or 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 where did that come from? I think if any of my friends or or even my wife heard you say that, they would laugh and be like, "Absolutely not! <laughs> what what are you talking about, Mark?" <laughs> um, look, I I think we all we all pass judgment easily, and and I still do. We all do. Let's be fair. Um, younger for sure, and I still even my friends joke like. You know, I'm the I'm the most critical person in our group of other people, um, and that that is that is holds true today. And but 100 percent do do I even if I make a comment about another person, I I try to very quickly come back to we have no idea what they're going through. Now there are people who just their DNA is wired to be angry to be, to push everything on them, or it's always about me or whatever that is. And, you know, it's taken me a long time to get to a point. And I, I don't believe I appreciate the accolades there, Mark. I don't believe I'm very good at it. Um, I, my sister, I'll go back to my sister and she's great at it. Um, I take, I definitely take cues from her, uh, on just seeing people and taking a breath and just, you know, life happens as they say, like, what are they going through? Um, but certainly not to judge others is, is definitely rooted from my experiences, um, you know, with my brother. And then all of us in Al, you spent a bunch of years at Mindcast too. And some of those early years and growth, like those are trying times for people, especially as a young organization grows and there's, you know, the the political landscape of a growing software company that has venture funding isn't always a pleasant place to be. That can and money does weird things to people. So that can create an environment of friction and of, you know, distrust and and other things. So like what I try to take from my experiences, um, and I've worked in some organizations that I I look back very fondly and I, I've worked at others that, that I, I've left because of the way, like the culture, the environment, the way the executive team, you know, treats people. Um, I don't believe that, yeah, they may make a lot of money. I, I have zero interest in, in making a lot of money on the heels of somebody else, you know, putting somebody else down or stepping over a bunch of people or not caring about them. Like I really, I don't believe in that environment. Now, accountability is important. Organizations should be built on meritocracy, no question. But, but you, the human side of it, I think, is is the third piece that you can build a great team, right? And that can they can execute really well. But you can have human conversations, and you can be real, right? You can be real with one another because everybody spends a lot of time at work, but we all have things to do outside of work, whether you have a family or not. And, you know, taking a minute to know people, I think is an important element of, you know, of building a team, whether that team is your friend group, right? Outside of work or, or in. So taking a little bit of tangent to your question, Mark, but it is definitely rooted in that. And, and certainly my nephew as well. And, um, you know, there's, we all have life experiences and, and I don't, uh, I don't believe this is the other big learning for me. I think after, not, I think I say that phrase too much, uh, when my brother died, 
And when people go through tragedy, you you tend to put yourself in a nobody knows what this is like. And you put yourself in this unique position when in reality, I also look back and I know a lot of people who've struggled and suffered exponentially more than I have. And I don't ever want to put myself in a position where there's this self-pity around what happened to me. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in things shape you. They don't define you. And it took me a long time to really subscribe to that. Um, but I don't ever want my life experiences to, to define who I am. Rob, would you mind just going a little and just talking a little bit more to that? Like I find that such a powerful statement um, that things shape you but don't define you. And it sounds like you've gone on a journey there. But just just to really like what when you say that, what what's the key for because some people I think would maybe go, Well now surely surely, you know, your life is shaped by these things. So what when you say you shaped you're not shaped, what is it? They shape you but don't define you. I'd love to just hear you just talk to that a little bit more deeply. I think what we're talking about today, if 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 we were to talk, um, you know, in 1999, like two years after my brother passed away, um, I would be more that I was defined by my brother's loss. I wouldn't talk about it. I'd probably push you guys away a lot. Uh, I would I would absolutely get aggressive <laughs> back back to any sort of lines of questioning or very defensive. Um, so for me, I, and then again, it took a long kind of learning. Like I didn't want that to define, I don't want that to define who I am. And I look at it now and I, it, it shapes me. It, it gives me empathy. It, it helps me understand people. Um, you know, when you have kids and, and certainly a fear for, for, you know, me was, um, and Sharon and I were like hyper aware, uh, probably over indexing on making sure that my boys were safe. And, um, when I talked earlier about that environmental element to, to mental illness, um, you know, I think one other piece of this around shaping, defining, like allowing boys to have emotion and show emotion is a really important thing for for me because it's and I'm not knocking my parents again I just didn't grow up in that environment so um and what I mean by Al specific to like shape first define it all of us know people who may lose somebody or go through a very traumatic event and they can't get through it they can't get past it it defines who they are and and then you hear other stories of people who, you know, rejection after rejection or physical injury from an accident, and, and you look at them and they are so positive and so, right, that shaped who they are. It didn't define who they are. So for me, I didn't want, you know, if I hid how my brother died, that would define me. Um, and you know, coming just full circle to the topic. I wanted to be able to, and I think my family feels this way in, in various degrees too, but allow it to shape us and look at things differently. Um, you know, moreover, like we have one, we have one spin on this big piece of granite, right? So like make the most, make the most of it. 
um, I have met people who, like, again, who we all have, who they, they, they can't let go or understand or be okay not understanding why something may have happened to them. And it just, it creates this negative negativity that I certainly, I had that at one time, no doubt. Like I was negative, was angry um, for a long time that I, if I look back, it was probably a culmination of many things. And I think as we get older and we mature and you have different life experiences, you kind of learn, you learn to learn from those rather than making them, you know, guide your, your, your mood or, or the rest, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think one, one of the most beautiful analogies that we've had on this podcast was from a, a, a lady called Mavis Khan. And I don't know if you've listened to that episode, Rob, but um, Mavis, you know, she's 86 now, I think. Um, but, you know, she, she talks about losing a child um, when she was a, a, a young mom. And, and um, to your point, she, at, at some point, through her her awakening and her deeper understanding of the human condition she she saw how she got to put that traumatic experience which she grieved for and and she she went through this full range of emotions on but she got to put that event in her library and she talks about having this library and she said the wonderful thing about that library is at any moment, you can reach out, you can pull that book down, you can open it up to that page, and you can use it for good. You can use it to help somebody else. Um, and so to your point about how it shaped her, she, she talks about she has this library of experiences that have shaped her, but they don't, they don't define who she is. She's not defined by the death and the loss of her child. But she, it certainly shaped her and given her this amazing ability to be empathetic with people who've gone through a very similar trauma. Yeah. And she gets to pull that book down off the shelf whenever she needs ah, it. Interesting. Interesting. I will listen to that. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's fair. I could probably ask you guys the same. We've all had, we've all had things in our lives that are, that are tough and, you know, allowing them to, I, I like that analogy, like, you know, put it in the library and draw on it later, um, is, is a powerful thing. And there's no, there's no question about that. And I, I mean, I wish we could talk for hours on this, on this episode because, you know, cause, cause just, you know, just the wonderful stories that you, I mean, Sharon is obviously the most remarkable woman your wife and and your two boys and the adventures that you go on and the way in which you kind of embrace being outdoors together and and the you know i know you go up to the to to upstate new york and you love the adirondacks and you do a lot of fishing up there and and but just just your deep deep appreciation for sunrises sunsets those moments you know you seem to have found a, a a remarkable way of being present um and i and i and i guess my, my my final question is just you know as you've 
do, do you do you ever sort of stop and observe yourself and go, oh, I am present. I'm doing it. I'm 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 being in the moment, and this feels good. Like how how have you cultivated that discipline? Well, I I, I would argue that I don't do it enough. Um, there's a couple of of and certainly. Um, I think any one of us that have with whatever career it is, um, have you ever woken up one day and said, wow, I wish I worked more. Right. And, um, it, you know, it, it, it's a, <laughs> I, I do like, I've had other life experiences, Mark, that, that you're aware of that, like, you know, you, you kind of bring you back to talk about that library, like to be in the moment. Um, you know, I look at how my parents grew up and, you know, I, they were older when they had me. So they've experienced like, you know, societally gone through some traumatic events and my parents didn't have money and they provided, they provided for us, um, you know, and that's great. But I, when I was younger and, and worked a lot and traveled a bunch from being in sales and missed a lot with the kids and, you know, definitely in the, in the past couple of years, you also balance. Um, yeah, I think as, as males, we, we tend to judge ourselves a lot by our title and like the house you live in and the car you drive. And those are easy things because others can see them. Um, you know, but I, I want to, I very much want to be able to do things like go to the Adirondacks and, and go hiking and fishing while I still can and not, not wish that I did that. So I, I very much now try to, and I think we're all guilty of this, like, oh, hey, we'll do, we'll do Mark, I'll use you as a, as a great example, like, you know, your place in me. And I remember talking to you about it and like, I don't know if I should do it and it's going to be a stretch and, you know, there's the risk involved with having a second place, but look how much you guys use it and love it up there and family moments that you've created. You did that and you just did it. And I very much try to do that now and instill that in my boys too, where it's important for you. If it's important for you to make money, great, make money, figure out how to do that, but live while you're doing it. And I also think there's a couple of, I alluded to earlier, like we've all, you know, I've worked for a couple of companies where <clears throat> I'd step on everybody and there was just no element of care in other people. And that very much, if I look at when those moments were to now is also when I started shifting into doing, you know, into doing more things and trying to be as present as I can. It's hard, right? For sure. Um, but I don't know if I, I don't believe that I've mastered it. I don't believe I'm very good at it. I appreciate you saying that, but I don't, I don't believe I'm fit at it. Um, <clears throat> I think that's part of the game that we all play, which is like, I know, I think the joy is in the, uh, it sounds to me like you've done a pretty awesome job. Like I, this is the, the second time that I've met you, but the first time I've really spoken to you in, in this level of depth and, and it's uh, so. It sounds to me like you've done uh, done and doing a hell of a job of living from this place. Like we talk about the open hand and the closed fist, and been able to kind of 
see see where we're coming from and you know even your humility which i love each time mark says something you the humility but equally to me i think it's it's the opportunity to see that we can come from this place more and more and the awareness to be able to notice when we're between those um and i think the the thing that struck me and and one of the things that you said you know we can't i just wanted to bring us back we can never see the thing about people isn't it we we only see the external stuff we can't really see so when we look at someone like mark sees you and like you're doing this great job of being present and you're like wow i think i think i could do better and it's because because you are the most the person who's most aware of your dance between open hand and closed fist and different things and so we only see it but that that to me is the greatest opportunity is to know that that's what we're up to like that is living yeah. it is it is living is the never ending journey of mastery of being present for ourselves and i think it's just amazing to hear the way that you talk about it um because i think it shines a light on something for everyone which is there is no point that you get there where you go oh like is there a point where we can get and we're just perfect and there's no suffering or there's no hardships and it's like no not really but the more that we can be with it and understand that that's what it's about the better it is and funnily enough i've got uh, there's that book and i can't remember it's an australian author that wrote it it was a lady who spent time in a it was an old people's home and she wrote the five the book i think was the five regrets of the dying and they are i wish i'd had the courage to live a life true to myself not the life that others expected of me i wish i hadn't worked so hard I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends and I wish I'd let myself be happier. Yeah, for for sure. That is I'm going to look that up. I I definitely want to read that. It's um yeah, we have like I said we have one we have one shot at it and I'm guilty of it. You keep hey, if I get here then then we can do this. If I get there, well, you get there and then you keep reaching right? I get there and I keep going for something else. And at some point you, you have to, you have to sit back and enjoy what's, what's around you. Um, you know, back to like shape and define all of us, like, especially in software sales, it's, it's, Hey, that guy got a huge commission check. Great. Doesn't, it doesn't mean he's a good guy or good girl. You know what I mean? Like, cool. I'm happy for them. But does that really define who they are? you know, and kind of bringing that kind of full circle. Um, yeah, I, 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 we, I try to have that with everybody I work with, you know, Hey, is it okay if I have off tomorrow to do, I'm like, why are you asking? I literally had somebody ask me this week, we're supposed to go to an event and they're, and it starts on Sunday and they said, Hey, I have a family wedding that weekend. Is it okay that I miss the event? Mike, are you, are you kidding me? Yes. Yes, it's okay. Moreover, if if we've built an organization that is dependent on one person and we'd fail if you didn't miss some event, I go, we're failing miserably. Don't even question that. Like go to that a family event. So anyway, we can we can chat through these things a, a ton. But yeah, living living a bit and five re, five 
regrets of dying. Is that it, Al? Five regrets of dying. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you the I'll send you the link after. And for those listening, we'll put it into the show notes. It's a uh, awesome. So, mate, we've uh, we've reached the the top of the the hour together. Um, but um, we, as you know, we have a a, a fun tradition or ritual um, on the show where we ask you to come up with your bumper sticker for life. And and before we do that. Um, uh, with your permission, I'd love to put that speech um, to the Bergen Community College uh, in the show notes for people to read because I, I mentioned Jerome's beautiful poem um, and uh, it's in there and I'd love people to not only have access to your words and, and your wisdom in that speech, which I think a lot of people will find great comfort from and 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 and, and great power from, but also, you know, it'd be great for people to see that poem and and um, and have access to that. So, if you're comfortable with that, we'd love to put that in the show notes. I think what I sent you, Mark, was was like a draft. Um, I'll go back. I'll send you an updated one. But I would great. also be. I, I'd carry this step further. You can put my my email in there. And if anybody does listen and, and they don't know where to turn and they're kind of a little lost and want to have a personal conversation with somebody who has experienced it and has gone through it and would like to just understand confidentially, like, hey, what what can I do and what's around me to help? Please, please reach out. Like, I mean that. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. That's amazing. What a, what a gift. Thanks, mate. Uh, all right. So... Uh, hit us with your, uh, bumper sticker for life. I don't pretend well. Nice. Damn. Uh, <laughs> um, I remember years back I had, I had, I was talking to, was interviewing with a, with a venture capitalist and, uh, it, it was kind of digging in and, and, Kept ask, kept asking me like why, 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 and finally I just turned and it just came. To me. I'm like, I don't pretend well. Like when I'm mad, you're gonna know. When I'm happy, you're gonna know. When I think you're doing, you know, a, a bad job, I'm gonna tell you. And when you're doing a good job, you're gonna get all the accolades as well. Like I just don't pretend. I can't do that anymore. Um, and I do think that is a byproduct of of back to like shaping and defining like experiences and how many of us being in the software world how many salespeople we know who aren't genuine, aren't real, like they pretend. So I don't pretend well. What a great place to end, mate. Thank you so much. This has been, I can't believe we're over an hour and, and it's just flown by, but thank you so much for your generosity of spirit, your love, your empathy, your courage, uh, and your vulnerability and just putting it out there. And I, I think anybody listening to this will will find this incredibly powerful and moving and hopefully people who are going through a loss um, as a result of suicide in particular will find great comfort and, and we do encourage you to, to reach out to Rob if you need to as well. Please, please do. Um, thank you. You're thanking me. Thanks for the opportunity for, for me to talk through that. Um, you, you commented earlier, Mark, and this is something that I, I think is important. Like if we can't help just one person, one family, um, you know, it, it's a, it's an amazing thing. And for you guys, like, I hope 
you know, tonight when you go to bed and you kind of put your, your head on the pillow, like you did a good thing today for those that are out there who might need help. And I, you know, I do mean that, like it is an important thing for people to, to talk about. And I can also give you links, Mark, if you want to put in the show. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Some resources for people. Yeah, thanks, mate. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be super. Rob, I just, I, I would just like to echo everything Mark said, and just be a, a really and deep appreciation for you for your sharing for uh, your awesome, amazing, loving humanness. It's uh, it's been super powerful. So very, very grateful and and thankful for you. Well, folks, we really hope you found this uh, episode as profound and as insightful as we have and like we said we'll put everything in the show notes and do reach out if you need to there's uh three men here always willing to talk take care and we'll talk to you next week thank you for joining us on this enlightening journey unraveling the innate brilliance within every human being we hope today's episode has sparked new thoughts and inspired fresh perspectives remember The power to shatter illusions and unleash your true potential lies within you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite platform. If you'd like more insights and daily doses of inspiration, you can follow me on Instagram at alkennycoaching. Or you can connect with myself and Mark on LinkedIn, uh, where we will share articles and perspectives about unlocking your innate brilliance. Remember, you are capable of extraordinary things. Keep believing, keep exploring, and keep shining brightly. Take care and stay brilliant.